to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Therapeutics Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as our fellow ASHP members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Dr. Aaron Burton, Department Chair and Assistant Professor at the University of St. Joseph, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me today are Dr. Sandeep Devan Bhaktani, Cardiology Pharmacy Faculty Member at the University of Maryland, and Dr. Tiffany Sai, Inventory Care Pharmacy Faculty Member at the University of St. Joseph. Sandeep and Tiffany, thanks for joining us today. Let's get into today's topic, Expert Consensus Decision Pathway for Heart Failure and Reduced Ejection Fraction Updates, Implications for Transitions of Care. Our first question for our speakers today is, what are the main takeaways from the 2021 update to the 2017 Expert Consensus Decision Pathway? Sure. So the 2021 update incorporated new knowledge to the 2017 expert consensus decision pathway from recent clinical trials in the management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. While we plan to discuss many of these points later today in more details, here's some of the main takeaways. So first, in regards to guideline-directed medical therapy, also known as GDMT, It should not be delayed and should always be initiated immediately when possible. The new backbone of GDMT now includes four elements, a heart failure beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor ARB or um, angiotensin receptor neptralysin inhibitor, also known as ARNI, an aldosterone antagonist, as well as an SGLT2 inhibitor. Between an ACE inhibitor ARB or an ARNI, ARNI is now preferred when possible. Another takeaway point is on the assessment of adherence. Medication adherence needs to be assessed at every patient encounter, and patient-specific interventions should be made to help improve adherence. And lastly, it's really important for us to discuss goals of care with patients with heart failure, both early on and periodically, in order to assist patients in the understanding of the value of their therapy. Oh, excellent. Thanks for the overview, uh, Tiffany. So our next question is, when is the ideal time to consider initiation of guideline-directed medical therapy? That's a great question, Aaron. Right now, optimization of uh, GDMT unfortunately remains dismal. Less than 25% of patients with HEPRAP without contraindications are prescribed all GDMT, and only 1% receive target doses of ACE inhibitor, ARB, or ARNIA beta blocker and aldosterone antagonist. This suboptimal use is likely due to multiple factors. The first one is provider hesitance. They may not feel comfortable in starting a new medication if they're not very, they'll understand the new medications like RNA and SGLT2 inhibitor, which we'll talk about later. Another concern can be like for adverse drug reactions. I know one of the frustrations I had um, in the inpatient side is that people didn't want to start patients on spironolactone on discharge because they were worried about their potassium and whether or not they would be followed up on. And so they would prefer that the provider would start it on their first follow-up visit after discharge. And then finally, there's also an unfortunate habit of clinical inertia. We may get them started on the right drugs, but we don't do a good job 
of titrating those drugs. So um, especially when it comes to beta blocker, we, when we know that there can be some t- tolerance issues when increasing the dose. So that is an also another major phenomenon that we have to work through. When it comes to the ideal time to start GDMT during is really during hospitalization for management of acute heart failure. If patients can tolerate the medication, immediately done closer to discharge, it doesn't have to be started right away. But it's real, there's plenty of studies that have been shown that by starting right before discharge can actually help to improve uh, optimization of therapy and improve mortality. However, even if we do start it in the inpatient setting, it's crucial to arrange timely follow-up after the hospitalization. In the outpatient setting, adjustment of therapy should be considered every two weeks to achieve target maximal tolerated doses within three to six months of initial diagnosis. And finally, an echocardiogram should be repeated three to six months in patients with HEPRAF after achieving target doses of GDMT to evaluate need for devices such as implantable cardioverter defibrillator, also known as ICD. Thank you, Sandeep. Uh, yeah, definitely can fill you with that provider hesitance from the, the inpatient side for my own practice as well. Um, so our next question is, what is the place in therapy, as you kind of already started to mention a little bit, of angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, also known as ARNIs, in the management of patients with HEFREF? So RNAs should be start um, should be considered in all patients with stage C HEFREF and NYHA class two to four, based on the data from the Paradigm trial. RNA or sacubitril valsartan is now, like we said earlier, preferred over ACE inhibitors or ARBs as first line when possible, even through de novo initiation, which basically means without prior treatment of an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. There are many benefits to ARNIs, um, including the reduction of mortality and morbidity, in addition to improvements in left ventricular function, diastolic function, as well as quality of life. So one possible question clinicians might have when considering starting or switching patients over to ARNI is whether treatment with an aldosterone antagonist is required prior to starting ARNI therapy. The expert consensus makes it very clear that while there's no data suggesting aldosterone antagonists are mandatory before starting ARNI, and therefore it's really important that we don't delay switching a patient from an ACE inhibitor or an ARB to an ARNI or starting an ARNI de novo based on whether or not patients are being treated with aldosterone antagonists yet. ARNIs should be avoided in patients with a history of angioedema. And compared to ACE inhibitors and ARBs, ARNIs have a larger impact on blood pressure. Therefore, patients who are taking ARNIs should be monitored closely for potential hypotension. And other monitoring parameters include hyperkalemia or acute kidney injury. Completely agree with Tiffany about like trying to use ARNIs as first line if possible. Um, really, one of the reasons I, I know one of the hesitations for doing that is you're not sure if the patient can tolerate it before they tolerate it, ACE or an ARB. But we asked to have some a couple of trials that have come out recently in the last few years, and one of the trials was called the Transition HF trial. Based on that trial, Arnie was shown to be able to be safely initiated during hospitalization for acute heart failure exacerbation prior to discharge. 
And really, actually, the, when they did start the patients on Arnia, and these patients may not have been on ACE or an R beforehand, this actually led to an improved mortality and decreased rehospitalization. So I can't stress enough that it is okay to consider starting the RNA before discharge. I know there's some hesitation about that, but really the, the trial data that we have really supports use. And really at our uh, at University of Maryland, we have now opted to put everyone on RNA before discharge as much as we can, unless there's barriers to do that as well. Some of those potential barriers that you can have is obviously the first one would be cost, because this is a new, relatively new medication. Fortunately, most of the insurances have now started to cover this because they know that this is a something that decreases mortality. Unfortunately, you may still run into prior authorization requests for some of the insurance plans, but I have gotten into the habit of calling them even from the inpatient side, because I feel like a lot of places have streamlined the process for prior authorization. It only takes five to 10 minutes, and I think it's worth it if you can help your patient in um, prolonging their survival. As Tiffany mentioned before, this one does have a bigger um, issue with a blood pressure effect. And so you may have to worry about hypotension, which is one of the biggest issues when patients are coming in for a heart failure exacerbation. So something that definitely will need to be monitored on the outpatient side, as well as potassium, as Tiffany mentioned before. And then I would just want to reiterate that it definitely need to have a proper follow-up in the outpatient setting for close monitoring of all these side effects. Great, thank you. So switching classes here for, for drug classes. So what is the role for sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors in the management of patients with HEFREF? This was actually a very surprising finding that um, it, uh, it really rocked the cardiology world um, about the, having to use the SGLT2 inhibitors. This was actually marketed first for type 2 diabetes or diabetes management in general. And what we found when doing those studies, that there was actually a cardiovascular benefit during when they were doing those studies for the FDA approval. And the, the, there was a lot of investigators who wanted to further investigate the cardiovascular benefit and found that there might have been an impact on heart failure hospitalization, which led to two landmark trials that really were published in only just the last couple of years. And those two trials were the DAPA-HF trial, looking at dapagliflozin, and the EMPEROR-reduced trial, looking at empagliflozin. And really, those two both demonstrated that STOT2 inhibitors are effective in decreasing mortality and hospitalization in patients with HEFREF, with or without type 2 diabetes, which was a huge finding for us because it's been a long time since we've had new medications, except for our needs. I know that there is a role of Ivabrity, you know, that in there, but that one has become of a limited role because of cost and other um more effective therapy that are out there. So we were really excited in cardiology to have the SGOT2 inhibitors to, uh, come into play here. Another big finding that we found in the last couple of years is that SGOT2 inhibitors may also potentially slow kidney disease progression in patients with HEPREP, which is also another dreaded complication in patients with heart failure, is that they may start to have kidney issues. So because of all this data, the new guidelines that were published in 2021 decided to now indicate um, SGOT2 inhibitors for patients with New York Heart Association class two to four symptoms if they meet the 
um, creatinine clearance cutoff using the EGFR requirements. So, so for dopaglifosin, the cutoff is EGFR greater than or equal to 30 millimeters per minute. And for empagliflozin, it's 20 milliliters per minute that you'll be able to use these medications. It's not that they're not safe, but if the creatinine cutoff is below that, the problem is that it may not be as effective if they're at a lower creatinine clearance. The key thing to remember with as from a side safety profile is that it should be important to avoid in patients with type 1 diabetes because of the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. The SGDLT2 inhibitors can be initiated safely during hospitalization for acute heart failure, since there is a minimal effect on blood pressure. Our group was actually really happy about the fact that this doesn't really have a blood pressure effect. And I know sometimes we're not able to really ramp up the ACE inhibitor, ARB or RNA, or the beta blocker due to the fact that patients have a very low blood pressure to work with. And so it's really nice that the, we can actually start everyone an SGLT2 inhibitor um, in the inpatient setting. That is another common question that comes up is, should the patient be optimized on all the other therapies before starting the SGLT2 inhibitor? There's actually been a couple of recent trials that have shown that SGLT2 inhibitors seem to have an impact on heart failure independent of RNA or any other medication. So I would highly advocate for trying to start the SGLT2 inhibitor as soon as possible so it doesn't have that problem with worrying about the blood pressure effect. The main safety concern is urinary tract infection and possibly volume depletion due to the diuretic effect that it can have. But so the key thing from a urinary tract infection is to make sure that you educate about the hygiene um, for patients. And then I know that there was a question because there is a possible diuretic effect, because that's how SGLT2 inhibitors work um, when you're urinating glucose. Um, so one thing we really want to educate patients on is making sure that they monitor their weight closely. Another question that comes up with providers is, should we go ahead and change the diuretic dose because we know there might be a potential diuretic effect? Unfortunately, it's been inconclusive from the trials where not they sh you should definitely reduce the dose. At this time, it's recommended to not reduce empirically just because of the SGLT2 inhibitor. What you should do instead is just monitor their weight closely in the outpatient setting and then as you do your follow-up with them at the clinic visit, you can decide whether or not you should potentially adjust the diuretic dose, which is what you should be doing anyway for all patients with heart failure. I just wanted to add a couple of things to that. First, the nice thing about SGLD2 inhibitors is that there's not much of a titration compared to all of the other heart failure medications. Um, that does make this medication a little bit easier to start um, and doesn't require quite as many specified follow-up visits to help titrate us to target dose um, because you can initially just start at the right dose. One of the questions that I get from my primary care providers is that, um, would you be concerned about hypoglycemia if you're using a anti-glycemic agent in someone who doesn't have diabetes and they only have heart failure? Um, and really hypoglycemic events with the use of SGLT2 inhibitors are rare in studies. And the expert consensus essentially also recommends that, you know, if you are concerned about hypoglycemia 
um, it's more likely to occur in patients who have heart failure and diabetes, in addition to, uh, especially if they're taking insulin or agents such as sulfonylureas. And if that's the case and you're concerned about their um, glucose control, then um, they recommend coordinating care between different specialties, um, including primary care, endocrinology, and cardiology. And I just want to add that I think pharmacists or clinical pharmacists can also play a very pivotal pivotal role in helping to manage this. Excellent. Thank you both. I, I think I forget sometimes about the potential renal protective benefits of, of these drugs too, because you think about all of the uh, potential side effects there from, from the kidney issues. And um, it's just really great to, to bring that point around too and um, how, how easy that we don't have to worry about the titration. So thank you again. Uh, so one of the reasons for the suboptimal use of GDMT in this patient population is because of decreased medication adherence. So what are some strategies that you would recommend to improve medication adherence? So again, as we mentioned earlier, when we talked about the main takeaways, adherence should be assessed at every patient encounter, and it shouldn't be assumed because just because a patient was apparent last, uh, adherent last month doesn't mean things haven't changed um, since you've last saw them. So this is especially important because non-adherence to heart failure GDMT is actually associated with worse outcomes for patients. There are many different reasons for non-adherence, and oftentimes each patient is faced with more than one barrier. So some of these reasons could include perceived lack of effect. They don't know why they're taking all of these medications, um, poor health literacy, complexity of regimen, impact of other comorbidities such as depression or dementia, polypharmacy side effects, um, and as previously mentioned, cost is also a big factor. So one strategy to help improve adherence would be to provide education to explain in patient-friendly language what heart failure is and why patients need each agent. So patients should be informed that because that they now have heart failure, they will need multiple drug agents, each with a different purpose. That way we can set an expectation that with heart failure, it can't be managed with just one agent. So when um, a provider is recommending adding a second agent or a third agent, patients have an understanding that this isn't going to replace what I've been taking, but it's actually going to be an addition. One of the core measures of the Joint Commission is to provide heart failure discharge instructions. However, even if there is sufficient time um, to provide such education prior to discharge, Patients might be too overwhelmed from a new diagnosis, or they might just be overwhelmed from trying to recover from their hospital stay to really fully engage in the discussion. As such, it, it should not be assumed that discharge education is sufficient um, for patient understanding of all of this new information. Therefore, it's really crucial that we reassess their understanding at follow-up clinic visits where they now have time to be home um, to, to think about their diagnosis and really come up with questions that they may not have been able to ask during discharge. 
Um, some other strategies to help improve adherence include providing an updated medication list or calendar and demonstrating how to use a pillbox, or whether with a patient or with a caregiver. We can also consider the use of medication reminders in the form of an alarm or for some um, a mobile application. The only other thing I was going to mention was that um, you can also use monetary incentive to try to promote um, adherence. So, for example, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services provides monetary incentives for institutions that better engage patients and caregivers and discharge plans to reduce avoidable readmissions. And they also provide incentives for models that aim to support patient adherence after discharge. These monetary incentives or other rewards for medications may be cost savings for highly efficacious and inexpensive drugs, such as beta blockers and HEPREP, and this may also help patients in the long term. There are also other things that you can consider, as such as having a, someone with a medication management. Tiffany um, hinted at this earlier, but having a pharmacist co-management, there's been a lot of great data recently about like having pharmacist-led heart failure clinics, because those, and, and those have actually been shown to improve outcomes. So there's been a lot of a push for starting up new heart failure clinics that are led by pharmacists, which is an exciting time in the world of cardiology. And then finally, you can also consider cognitive behavioral therapies for the patient and helping them to train how they can better take their medications. Great. Sandeep, are there any second-line therapies that should be considered for patients with HEPREF? Yes, this is a very common question that still comes up, but despite, you know, I know there's a lot of medication that you already have to think about for patients um, with heart failure, but yes, there are still some things to consider um, for patients who are still symptomatic because we still want to try to help them with their symptoms for heart failure and keep them out of the hospital. For persistently symptomatic block patients, despite the above therapy that they all four therapies that they're on, hydrazine and isosorbide dinitrate should be considered based on the AHEFT trial that demonstrated mortality benefit. So this is something that we should consider routinely for black patients. But I really would advocate for making sure that they're optimized on the first four agents first, because one downside of using hydrazine and isosorbide is that it is dosed three times a day. And so just making sure that the patient can actually tolerate doing this and be able to improve their medication adherence. Because I know a lot of my patients usually only take hydrology and I start by twice a day because they always forget that third dose and everything. So, so something to consider before putting this on them, because I know it's a very hard drug to um, to use. And unfortunately, there hasn't been any changes to maybe trying to make a long-acting formulation for that. I mentioned before about a little bit about ivabradine, and ivabradine is a hyperpolarization activated cyclic nucleotide gated, or also known as HCN channel blocker. The guidelines recommend use in patients on maximally tolerated beta blockers with persistent heart rate above 70 beats per minute and sinus rhythm. However, this is rarely used in practice since patients are rarely at the maximum dose of beta blockers with elevated heart rate. And really, the other key thing to remember about ivabradine, this only decreased hospitalization. It did not 
decrease mortality. So that's why I would not advocate for use for ifabridine unless the patient clearly has a, a tachycardia despite being on a maximum tolerated beta blocker. And then finally, digoxin, which was actually why the first ones to be used in heart failure because of its positive inotropic effect, is still there is still a role for digoxin. It can be used in patients who are persistently asymptomatic as another option to in patients who have already been optimized on all other therapies. And this has been shown to reduce hospitalization. So that is the main role for it in refractory heart failure. Thank you, Sandeep. Uh, Tiffany, so what are some barriers that you see for patients with HEFREF with these updated practice recommendations? So as Sandeep mentioned earlier, a, a big barrier is cost, um, especially now that you know patients are on multiple agents for heart failure, which means multiple copays. Additionally, the newer agents, arnine as GLT-2 inhibitors, are expensive and not always covered by insurance. Now that guidelines recommend them as first line, we're starting to see them become more accessible. But again, not all insurances are covering these agents. If a patient's insurance doesn't provide adequate coverage, one option is to consider patient assistant programs. And if these programs are not available, then unfortunately, we would have to consider more affordable alternatives to ARNI, um, such as using an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. For certain health centers that have access to the 340B program, that's also a great way for us to help get uh, more affordable medications for our patients. For some patients might have the barriers of transportation. We talked about the importance of good follow-up appointments afterwards to titrate their medications and monitor their labs and vitals accordingly. But if the patients can't make it to clinic, then they can't have their follow-up visits. So for patients who might have the transportation barrier, we can consider arranging care through visiting home nursing services. We can also involve social workers, patient navigators, or care coordinators to help navigate this barrier. Another barrier with med titration is hyperkalemia, which we've mentioned a few times today um, in regards to the side effects of these medications, especially from the use of an ACE inhibitor, ARB or ARNI, in addition with an aldosterone antagonist. In patients with hyperkalemia, we should provide education on a low potassium diet. And clinicians may also consider the use of potassium binders, such as pteromer. However, more data is needed regarding their use. And with the addition of SGLT2 inhibitors to the heart failure arsenal, um, we've mentioned this briefly earlier, but a common question is, do we need to wait to add an additional agent um, such uh, like aldosterone antagonists or SGLT2 inhibitors until after we've achieved target doses of their beta blocker or ACE ARNI. Um, the expert consensus is clear in their answer to this question. Um, achieving target or max tolerated doses of GDMT or beta blockers or ACE ARB or ARNI is not necessary before the addition of SGLT2 inhibitors or aldosterone antagonists. Although we don't really have strong evidence supporting this at this time yet, it's currently recommended that patients be on multiple classes of GDMT rather than being only on large doses of one or two agents, especially if they cannot be titrated to target doses due to barriers like hypotension, renal function, or hyperkalemia. 
And overall, and I think as Andeep's already mentioned, clinical pharmacists are great resources to help with uh, help assist with all of these barriers, um, especially with cost and transportation. As we're familiar with prior auth authorizations and discount programs, and we can also conduct med management via telehealth, which may be more convenient for our patients and allow for more frequent follow-ups. And pharmacists are definitely in the unique position of being able to assist with multiple barriers and serve as a line of communication between the different specialists that the patients see, primary care, cardiology, and even now endocrinology with the SGLT2 inhibitors. So I think we are in a good place to be able to serve as a liaison between these specialists um, who are managing a patient with heart failure. Thank you, Sandeep and Tiffany, for joining us for today's episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. If you haven't before, I encourage all our listeners to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member exclusives, offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, a personal favorite of mine, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with ASHP members who are content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.